Thanks for coming, everybody. Uh, my name is Danae Redding, and it is February 9th, 2020, and this is my Coming to the Path talk. So when I first heard um, about the Zen Center, I wanted to figure out, like, who are these people? Like, what are they doing? Where, where are you coming from? Um, and so I ended up finding some of the um, talks online, and as soon as I heard the first Coming to the Path talk, I listened to everyone immediately. <laughs> and I immediately started thinking about what am I going to say in my first Coming to the Path talk. <laughs> That's occupied like every Sashin experience since then, so I'm glad that I could uh, have this behind me. <laughs> Um, at the time, I had read The Three Pillars of Zen, but I didn't realize that it was the Rochester Zen Center. Um, I was a graduate student at Syracuse University, and I was in this wonderfully interdisciplinary program that let me draw from any department across the campus as long as it fit into my dissertation experience. So I was taking classes from primarily the education department, but feminist studies, philosophy, sociology. I even did re religion and creative writing. But at the core of all of it was just a real curiosity about how identity works. Some people think about like identity in a psychological way um, where it's like one's understanding of oneself and like the inner workings of a person's selfhood. But my interest was mostly on the social level which is why the Coming to the Path Talk was like such a perfect thing for me to look at to see like who's the Zen Center. Let's look at what these individuals are saying. Um, so, um, one of my areas in all of this was uh, called autoethnography, which is a way of doing research that look, looks at the author's life experience and self-reflection to draw concrete understandings of larger social systems. Um, so it was, yeah, it was a perfect place for me to try to get a better understanding of, of, of the path itself. Um, and I could start dreaming of who, who I could become on this path. Um, so to go back in time a little bit, my parents were born in South Louisiana which is an ethnic enclave. Um, their home language was Cajun French. Um, at the time, uh, they couldn't speak French at schools um, or else corporal punishment was, was a real possibility that was happening all over Louisiana. Um, they were quite poor, like most of the kids they knew. They had no running water in their homes, often no shoes with several kids sleeping in the same bed. My mom was the oldest, um, the second oldest of six, the oldest girl uh, in the family, and she she grew up with a real free-range parenting style. Uh, she can go wherever her feet could take her. Um, but she had a deep sense of obligation to her younger siblings and very much did a lot of work raising them. Uh, I wondered how much my grandmother struggled with depression because it certainly ran in the family and I imagine my mom kind of picking up a lot around the house. Um, my father was the youngest with three older siblings but he was also the only boy in the house. Um, his father died when my dad was 12 so he had a deep sense of obligation to provide for his mom and sisters. So when he would leave school, um, he would often go hunting, trapping, fishing for dinner. In South Louisiana at the time, especially rural South Louisiana, meat was either caught or raised, but it was rarely bought in the grocery stores. So vegetables became associated with poverty and hardship. Um, so my my parents gave me a lot of uh a lot of tools for surviving like really challenging life situations and I am I guess my I am so indebted to them for that 
um, there was no trouble in the world that was too big for keeping just one foot in front of the other. Uh, they had a deep sense of faith that everything in the world, every joy, every heartache, every opportunity, every closed door had a place that was that it was serving or else it just wouldn't exist. It, it had it had some purpose. Everything that arises came from something and it was just meant to be. They never gave an explanation more than that. Um, they didn't try to guess where it came from or what its purpose was. It was kind of mysterious. But that deep faith brought a deep acceptance with it. So it's kind of a way of surrendering to the process of life. Um, I think if you press my parents now, they would probably um, attribute it to God. Um, they weren't very uh, religious people, but but this spiritual base was definitely um, and is definitely a very strong foundation. Um, they believe that everything always came in good time. So if I ever said anything like, I'm not sure, you know, what, what's a good decision? Sometimes they would say, well, maybe it's just not time to decide. So any impatience about life was met with a deep understanding that you can't force it. It had to be respected or else you'd bring on a whole world of trouble. You'd be fighting a, a battle that you would never win. Time was just too big for all of us. So when it was time for something to happen, it was just a clear decision and there was just no, no debating it. Um, both had a lot of faith in following your own path, doing what made sense for you. Um, my dad's way of saying that is you have to do you. And my mom would, would say, you have to follow your gut. If it doesn't feel right, it's probably a mistake. So from early on, my gut was really my compass. Uh, she didn't give any more instruction than that, um, but I took, it, I took it seriously and did, did by her instructions as best as I could. Um, and when they said these things, they knew fully that it might mean that things were going to get real hard. There might be sacrifices, but that's what it was meant to be. My parents got married when they were 18, 19. Um, I have an older brother by seven years and a younger sister who's three years younger. Um, in our early years, my dad did a lot of offshore work. Uh, so he was working on offshore oil rigs. Um, and my mom ended up doing uh, training to do architectural drawing for a local architect. You know, at the time it was all by hand. And, um, and she did that job, I think, until I was born. Um, when I was about seven, the oil bust happened in Louisiana. That was uh, late, late is the early 90s. Um, so my parents uh, took a chance and moved to South Texas. That's where big oil industry was developing as Louisiana was falling apart. Uh, it was a huge cultural shift um, to go from South Louisiana ethnic enclave where you can turn on the radio or the TV and you'd hear people speaking French, you know, relatives speaking French. It was definitely like deep in everything. Um, to South Texas where like the accents totally shifted. It was very, his uh, so uh, South Texas being like um, on the coast, Corpus Christi, which is like three hours south of Houston, maybe two or three hours north of the Texas-Mexico border. So um, Spanish became the language. Um, so it's funny, like growing up, like moving from one very deep ethnic enclave to another and then having like national news or movies <coughs> never ever reflecting either place that I was from. Um, so it definitely, yeah, it helped me have a better sense of how culture matters. Um, the 
my parents were never very organized around, um, I'd say community service, but it was definitely embedded in our culture. Um, you would find, my dad still cuts the neighbor's grass. Um, they never asked for it, but he just knows the guy needs, needs help. So they're always looking out to see how they can help people. Um, one time I was in the grocery store with my mom and there's a woman with like just a huge, you could just look at what she had on in her cart and it was, it was definitely a sh soldier's wife and she was mailing a care package to him. And uh, without her knowing, my mom signaled to the, to the cashier, hey, let me pay for this lady's stuff. Um, it's something I have a lot of respect for both of them for. Um, when I was in elementary school, we were one of the first families to start this pilot recycling program in the town. We were just, I think, chosen at random, and my mom agreed to it. And me and my sister ended up getting our photo taken for the, the newspaper to promote the recycling program. I think that was like a really big impact on me. Um, but I was definitely really like I was a sucker for the good versus evil against all ad odds kind of thing. Captain Planet. <laughs> it's totally one of my favorite TV shows. The first time I ever cried in a movie, it was for Free Willy. For one, I gotta say, like I've never told anyone I actually watched that movie. <laughs> it's so cheesy, I find it a little embarrassing. But it made me cry. It was just this little kid just, just taking on this incredible role that really seemed really impossible. Um, Um, I was a rambunctious kid, like I had a lot of energy. My mom signed me up for uh, soccer, I'm, I'm sure it was my mom, um, when I was in kindergarten and I ended up doing soccer uh, for the next nine years. Um, I was definitely on my bike and on my rollerblades in the street. You know, we had a little bit of the free range parenting. I can run out and play outside as much as I wanted to, long as I didn't go in anyone's home without letting my parents know. And I could go so far that um, my, long as we can hear my dad's whistling to bring us in for dinner. Um, so there's a lot of freedom that way. I think I, I really needed that, that physical outlet. Um, but at the same time, I did, I did struggle with depression for, oh, you know, different, different bouts of depression. Uh, the first time I can safely say that I was depressed was as early as I think the first grade. Um, I remember struggling with insomnia as a kid. Um, but what kind of, you know, it, I didn't, um, I didn't have that framework of awareness to know what this was, um, for, for a lot of my life. Um, but what really tipped me off about being a depressed first grader was the sometimes intensely aggressive, like livid self-deprecating thoughts that I struggled with. I think a lot of kids kind of... They learn how to take out their anger on other siblings, and whenever you're the same age with your siblings, then then it's kind of it's it, there's a, a kind of safety to it. Like you can't hurt your sibling too bad because they're the same age, and there's a, a rambunctious kind of playfulness that can happen with it, and kids get over that fast. But um, my brother was really too big. <laughs> and, <laughs> And my sister was really too little, and I was really protective of her. So I turned my anger inwards. Um, and it, it was in the first grade, I, I was able to identify the first grade because of the room I was living in, um, that I started working with these thoughts. Uh, I remember standing in my, in my closet trying to get ready for school with these vicious thoughts and getting sick of it and and finally just just yelling back like in my head stop my entire being and it worked for a bit i mean like in that moment it just was silent 
after that, I learned how to talk back to them and, and try to find other ways of, of, of working with them. But it, I had a clear slant sense that those thoughts weren't, they weren't mine. I don't ha I didn't have to believe them. Um, but I think that that sport really was a huge, a huge outlet for, um, kind of managing some of that melancholy I had. Um, I was in the second grade when I got diagnosed uh, with dyslexia. So I spent some time in special ed classes. Um, I, uh, I was also a real nerd. Like I loved school. So it was a, it was a really difficult thing to um, work around. Um, I was terrified of uh, reading in class because I knew I'd just fumble over everything. Um, and I was really attracted to the sciences and math. I was really good at math. I actually, I did summer math and science camp. Um, and uh, I think I, I did some kind of like math competitions in high school, maybe junior high did that. Um, but I, I had, I had a lot to prove. I think there's, that's a way that like my competitiveness kind of started to come out. Um, I was good at putting in the work and not <coughs> having to accept that my work wasn't going to be valued or it was, it, I was not going to have anything to show for it. I just had to put the work in and in putting the work in, you got something just by working hard. And that had to be good enough for me because my grades would never be good enough. I still really wanted to prove my teachers wrong. Um, and that was, that was a big source of motivation. So I, I kind of like, um, uh, seesawed between, um, like lower track classes and, and higher track classes. Um, but I, uh, that, that became a big motivation for my graduate school work. Um, I was on the debate team, so every weekend I was going out for debate competitions. Um, I did actually the same kind of debate that John Pauline did. Um, I was also a saxophone player for a number of years. I was a, that was a big part of my education. Um, say the second bout of depression came in high school. Again, I, I really didn't know that I was depressed, but I had coping mechanisms. Um, at the time, I had uh, my dad gave me my first camera, and so I would take it around and try to find beauty in the smallest moments. And then I started walking around in my day-to-day -day life trying to find the smallest little beautiful thing. Um, I, I had this idea that beauty was always there. It was always there. You just had to look. So even in these terrible, heartbreaking moments, the range of human emotion is such a beautiful thing. Even deep sadness over a loved one can be profoundly beautiful when you can really appreciate how that sadness exists just because of the love that you felt, how much you cared for and gave yourself to this person you loved. So I, th I think it would be safe to say that this work was not just a practice about beauty, but also a practice about gratitude. So this, this, this time, um, it was a lot of spiritual work that I was doing and all that. Um, and I, I ended up having a couple of like kind of bizarre spiritual experiences like bizarre like one day I looked at my hands and they were just like so beautiful and I was just like I've never seen my hands this way like these are not my hands like they was they were not my hands and they were so beautiful 
Um, I had one like out of body experience and it, I had no, no under, no framework for understanding any of that. Um, so I went back to my mom's advice and I just put it, put it in my guts. And, and when it was time for my head to know what it was about, my body, my body would be able to tell me about it. I think that was a really, um, it's still, I still, I still go back to that. Um, like in Sashin, you can get stuck in these, you know, highs and lows of Sashin. And, and uh, I think I avoid um, dwelling in kind of the highs a little bit just because I just put it in my guts. But when I went to college, that all kind of took a sideline. Um, so when I, when I did go to college, um, I was certain that there was no way I could rationalize a good decision about it. Um, my parents never went to college. My brother did, but he always knew where he wanted to go. Um, so I, I couldn't... I couldn't begin to guess, like, how do you make a good decision about it? It's such a big decision. So I ended up consulting a friend of mine whose older sisters had just gone through the college process. And I asked her, if you could go anywhere in Texas, where would you go? And she said, Southwestern University. It's a good school. And um, what mattered to me about it was it had small class sizes and it was a beautiful campus. <laughs> That's kind of that's that's the meat and bones of what I knew about it. Um, I had read somewhere that it, it was a school that was known for making an impact. It had a strong community service kind of focus, and and that was that was it. Um, it was the only college that really made sense to my guts. If I knew it ranked as, or was going to be ranked, I don't know how it was at the time, but um, now it's ranked as the best liberal arts college in Texas by. I don't know, some measures. I probably wouldn't have applied if I knew that. Um, but that's where I ended up going. So I started college in August 2001. So I was there for a month, and then September 11th happened. And um, the at the time, the, ser the college put on a series of, of teach-ins to help students figure out what what was going on um, at the time I thought I was well educated on politics um, I grew up watching the news with my parents like every night um, and at the time the news was not based around Twitter or like divisive fighting you I don't have any memory of knowing which channel was associated with which political party um, and I was on the debate team. So one of the weekly competitions I was doing um, for, for four years of high school was all about making, I had 30 minutes to prepare a memorized speech on a current foreign event. But I was educated in American schools and I had absolutely no good sense of global history uh, so I went to every teaching I could go to. I just had no way of understanding how this was possible. They had professors from history, political science, anthropology, sociology, uh, environmental science, um, chemistry. Uh, the chemistry teacher was the environmental science professor. Um, and so they were all offering like a larger context for how, how this was possible. And there was no political event that impacted me as much as this one had. Um, you know, we had had the Gulf War, but I, I didn't really understand that. Uh, but for the most part, it was it was kind of, it seemed like a quiet period from my perspective. I had several friends join the military right after high school. They were looking for a better life, you know, they just, they, they wanted to get out of town. And that was the way. Um, and they, they, they did not imagine, they did not imagine we were in a time of peace, you know, what could go wrong? I kind of immediately became some version of an activist. Um, I was 
so taken aback by it all that it was impossible for me to place any blame because I just did not understand. And, um, but I could see in the whole, there was just a ton of misunderstanding and a lot of fear. And I was tremendously sad. Um, the whole world was caught up in a, just a complex web of forces that was so much bigger than all of us. And I, I wanted to know what I could do in my small world. So I had this like mission to make the world a better place. And, and I, uh, I could see that there was a lot more work to do than I had really appreciated. So my, my ignorance kept me pretty humble. Um, I had a very clear sense that it was really easy for very good people to do very harmful things. And I was really scared that I could contribute to that out of my ignorance. So it was the perfect time for me to be in college. I was just ripe, ripe for it. Uh, I ended up with a sociology major. I didn't get a minor, but I was one class away from having a minor in political science, philosophy, and feminist studies. I, my coursework included things like philosophy of class, philosophy of self, critical race theory, sociology of education, race and ethnic relations, modern European history, the, the Holocaust, politics of nature. Um, so it, it, it was really great time for like just some deep self-reflective work. Um, I was, I was kind of like a tomboy. Um, and I, uh, didn't, I didn't really struggle with that, um, being a tomboy identity. It wasn't an identity for me. It was just like, I just was running around playing outside all the time. Um, but the, but, but taking like the sociology of, of gender and sexuality made it, um, I could really appreciate how, um, like gender non-binary people, um, struggled with this, you know, our, our, our ideas of what a normal man or woman is, is, is an impossible fiction and to try to live up to those ideals is um, the whole world of trouble. Um, and, and I felt the same way with, um, with race. Um, like, so I've never been as white as I am living in the Northeast. Like being a kid that like ran around outside all the time, like my skin goes dark olive. So it was really confusing for people um, as a, when I was a kid, like they just, they couldn't, they couldn't identify my race very easily. I, I actually, for a little bit in college, identified as racially ambiguous. <laughs> <laughs> So when it came to questions of racial justice, I really, I really appreciated. Like it doesn't take much for these microaggressions, like little tiny digs, to, to really impact a person. Um, but I was also like my family's white, so like I could, I could really appreciate um, how whiteness worked. But as you know, a little bit of an outsider in both ways. So I had a little bit of an insider perspective too, in both ways. Um, so I, I actually, I put my hair in dreadlocks for like five years. Um, and part of that was like, one, I, I was like, I didn't want to waste water. But two, <laughs> two, I was really curious, like, what is this going to do to my race? Like, how are people going to see me? So when I was in South Texas, before I had the dreadlocks, you know, it was easy for people to think that I was Mexican. But then after the dreadlocks, I was mixed race. <laughs> um, yeah, so that, that's, that's, that's like the, uh, that's, that's what I loved about learning about identity and how it worked with the, the social stuff. You know, how we identify 
in these what feels like really personal ways really has nothing to do with us. So I loved college. I loved what I was learning. I loved it for the people in my life that I had at the time. It was a great experience, but it was also it was also really difficult. I mean, one, I was dyslexic and with some very like text heavy interest. You know, philosophy is not an easy read. Um, um, but I also grew up in a family that was familiar with the economic scarcity, and I was in college with a bunch of wealthy kids. Um, I was I was really good at keeping up with my with my work in school. Um, I got to know my professors, uh, like that was really easy for me to do, get to know my professors and that would help with the academic anxiety. But um, imposter syndrome was definitely a thing for me. Um, and then when I went home, there was this huge divide between what I was learning at school and what my family was seeing on the news. I really respected and appreciated where they were coming from, but the less I watched the news, the more distanced the national conversation I had. And the more I learned, I kind of started to feel a little bit like an imposter in my own family. As a country, you know, finally, finally caught on to how divided we actually are. And really, we've always been a divided nation. Uh, our foundings began with some beautiful ideals and principles, but we also, also started off with slavery and genocide. Like, we've never managed to really live up to our founding values, and we've never really healed from those heartbreaking beginnings. So it really shouldn't be surprising that we have a ton of work to do as a nation. And I think for me, it matters tremendously as someone who lives and works amongst a lot of Northeastern liberals, um, but also has a deep connection with a very different set of cultural values. The first time I really appreciated this internal stress was very recently. Um, Krista Tippett is this woman who has a podcast called On Being, it's not just a podcast, uh, but a radio show, I'd say. She interviewed um, Arlie Hotchilly. Um, that's not right, but good enough. Uh, she's a Berkeley UCLA, uh, very liberal sociologist who, after Trump was elected, went to South Louisiana, an hour from where my dad grew up, and interviewed people she later called her friends to try to understand their perspective on U.S. politics. She went there because the local politics were so dissimilar to her own that she had a real empathy wall to climb. That's her term, empathy wall. She is the first liberal who did the deep emotional work of trying to understand across the political divide that I knew of without trying to convince anyone they should think about things differently or place blame or preach. She was just trying to understand and appreciate where someone else was trying to come from without an ounce of self-righteousness. Uh, it makes me cry to, to think about um, the potential of that work. I, I definitely cried in the car. <laughs> listening to her. Um, so I ended up graduating college um, and I decided to go to grad school. You know, this, this idea that, um, you know, we create the idea of what smartness is. We create the idea of what it is to be stupid. We define these terms. And I really, I, I, I wanted to find a new way of understanding how we could potentially think about this. Uh, so I was, I was on a mission and a lot of it was, you know, my own wounds. I was just trying to work out. 
Um, and since I had that experience, I knew I had some insight I could offer. Um, but first I, I graduated from, from college and then I took a year off. Um, I got a decent job at the Texas governor's people, uh, Texas governor's office of people with disabilities. It's one of the leading governor's office in the country, at least at the time that I was there it was. I wouldn't be surprised if it still had that kind of reputation. I loved my coworkers. My boss had been a disability activist since the 70s and had worked on uh, accessibility development for most of her life. Um, but I, I ditched it and I went to school. That's where my passion was. I, 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 I had to do it. It was a big leap of faith. Um, I was really prepared for the uh, coursework, but the depression and anxiety in front of me was terrible. Uh, so graduate school, I think, was the third major significant struggle with depression. Um, again, I really didn't know that I was depressed at the time. I never sought treatment for it, and it lasted seven years. And this time, it was a lot worse. I went through phases when I couldn't get out of bed. I'd watch TV for days. Uh, my my uh, neighbor, downstairs neighbor, uh, she decided she was gonna pick up yoga, and I was like, oh, I, this is this. I'll go. I'll go to yoga with you. I needed to like the buddy system, um, so I started doing that. Um, I went three times a week. Uh, I mean, it took some time to get there, but I I, I picked up a pretty good yoga practice. Um, uh, There was panic attacks and um, my anxiety was getting high. I, when I went to college, back up a little bit, um, I ended up getting a diagnosis for ADD. Um, and that Adderall was a, it was a huge um, component in getting through undergraduate. Um, but when I went to college or went to uh, grad school, um, it was I never took Adderall how I was supposed to. I always took a lot less. And I continued to take a lot less, but a lot less was still more than I should have been taking. Um, so it had a terrible impact on my appetite, uh, and it, it kind of just all steamrolled into terribleness. Um, I was a, a little bit in an um, existential crisis with it, too. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd been in school long enough. I thought that was the, the thing that was going to, that, that was mine to make a difference. And it, 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 uh, it didn't have all the answers. There was, a, there was you, can't, you can't get to it all with, with a rational mind. You just can't. There's so much more to it. And, um, and so there's like a real, real existential crisis. Like, what is all this pain for? Like, why am I even alive? Like, I can't believe I would be put on this earth to suffer this much. Um, so I, I, I ended up kind of like, not consciously, I never made the conscious choice to back out of school so much. It was just, it became something I just could no longer do. Um, so I lost a bunch of weight. I didn't have weight to lose, but I lost weight. Um, at one point I was pulling, pulling like my hair out of my head and I saw the dreadlocks. I didn't realize what I was doing, making small bald patches. So it was easy to hide it, but, um, but uh, I cut my hair off and, and that I, I ended up picking out my skin kind of obsessively and and I was always a nail biter like so I bite my nails pretty aggressively um, I would start peeling the layers of my nail off it became so thin that um, I was really afraid that I would pull my nails out entirely um, I was eight years ago a couple of my nails were getting so thin and soft and I was about to start my second seven day sashin. That was uh, nine years ago, eight years ago. 
um, it was it was a memorable session for me and everyone in it because for a large part of that session I spent it in heaving sobs. It still amazes me that the body can produce that many salty tears at the rate it did. <laughs> Seriously. Like I felt like I was crying every tear that I'd ever held back in my entire life. And I was not a kid who cried a lot. Like but I was a really emotionally oriented kid. Years later, another participant told me that they were uh, waiting in line to get back into Keenheen and they saw my swollen red face and I looked so terrible that it made them cry. This session proved to be a major turning point. After more than 20 years of biting my nails, the habit just stopped. So I feel a lot of gratitude for all those people who sat through it with me. Um, it was uh, a year later um, that I came on staff here. Um, and uh, I feel really grateful for having the Zen Center in my life too. Um, uh, you know, it just makes all the difference having this practice and having an awesome room of people to practice with. <laughs> you know, we couldn't do it on our own. <laughs> I couldn't do it on my own. None of us could. Um, so I feel I feel really grateful to be able to um, to have training here um, and kind of set me set me back upright again, um, and I, I feel really really grateful that I can be here and work with others to um, help them through life. Anybody have any questions? <laughs> we do have time, some time, to ask questions. <coughs> Today, I'm just curious about what your first exposure to the Zen Center was or how. <laughs> I skipped that, didn't I? <laughs> 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 um. So I started my yoga practice and uh, I was really unstable um, for the first year. It wasn't very regular, and but I knew that was a big deal. So I asked my yoga teacher, how can I beef up my yoga practice? And he had been a Zen practitioner. So we started this weekly meditation group. Uh, I sat on couch cushions for 45 minutes a week. Um, and after a year of doing that, I decided I wanted to sign up for Sashin. <laughs> <laughs> I looked at uh, doing an archery retreat because my boyfriend was super into traditional archery. Zen Mountain Monastery does the Zen arts. Um, but the timing of it was terrible. Um, but the August two-day Sashin was perfect. And... Um, Wayman was generous enough to let me sit in the sashin even though I had never been to the Zen Center before. Uh, uh, the first night was terrible. Um, I had never sat on Zafus before, uh, so it was incredibly painful. But it was, it was uh, really powerful for... Uh, I could see how seriously I was taking things, taking myself way too seriously. Um, I, I kept coming back um, once a month. I would volunteer for a weekend and do the scene through racism meetings. Um, then I found out that all day sittings happened and I, I kept coming back for those. I fell in love with your description of your parents. 
Yes. Yes. Um, it was, uh, I went through a, a trying period, you know, that's, that, that second seven days sashin, a lot of it, I just didn't remember, like, the pain that I had, I had still been carrying from childhood. I had no sense of that. So it, it uh, uh, I think every kid wants to, like, just believe that their parents are superhuman. Um, and then, but we're not. <laughs> uh, and the, it's kind of heartbreaking to have to lose, lose the, uh, lose the ideal that your parents are superhuman. Um, so I, I, uh, had, uh, you know, as a teenager, I wasn't, um, I never went through the, like, I hate my parents phase. I waited until I was like 29. (laughs) 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 But, uh, but I I have a better relationship with my parents since having gone through all of that and, and really, yeah, doing that, that internal work. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I, uh, as, as both a son and a, a parent myself, uh, I've found that uh, transition from letting my parents uh, be my parents to letting my parents just be people in the world really tricky about it. <laughs> yeah I think I think most of us struggle with that I think we all kind of think it's our own stuff but it's it's not it's just it's just growing up so Danae what are what are these people about here you said in the <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm still figuring that out <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had no clear insights about it. I, it was just a fascinating question. Yeah, everyone is just so different. So different. <laughs> it's so great. Uh-huh. I'm just wondering if you could share a few more touch points of um, how your practice is informed your life outside the center and how your life outside the center is um, I, th- I think that distinction, um, you know, it helps us organize our worlds. You know, we have to kind of, you know, you walk into a museum and you're going to behave differently than when you walk into your house. Like, I think those distinctions are helpful for that, but like, it's all the same, you know, it's the, the stuff that we face on like there's it's the same same work um i think whenever we're mm, you know encountering somebody outside of our own head um we're kind of seeing ourselves reflected in that other person and on the mat you're just seeing yourself reflected to yourself <laughs> so it's but it's the same this yeah Today. Do you think that the ADD diagnosis you got was that accurate? Do you still have it? Um, I, I think that the symptoms that were presenting themselves was is is was ADD, like it was ADD for a T to a T, uh, but I don't think that those symptoms are still presenting themselves. I think if I lived a less structured life and if I had a different diet and if I if the environmental factors changed I'm sure that they would present themselves again but I think I have a pretty good set of environmental factors to <laughs> <laughs> reduce the symptoms <laughs> so it's do I have it do I not have it I, I don't really know but yeah it's just life can I um sounds like you've had such a beautiful transformation since you arrived here at the center and that makes me so happy for you to hear that. Um, I'm wondering what tools either here at the Zen Center or outside um, have you found really useful um, that helped you make that transformation 
obviously Zazen, but <laughs> anything else? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Sashin, Sashin is, is definitely uh, an experience that resonates with me and, and works, works well for me. Um, uh, I, I think the training environment is, is, pretty, is pretty amazing. Um, there's, it's just so much simpler than, than work outside. Um, yeah, and ha having the, having the community here who's, you know, we're all going through our own stuff and, um, and, and having that, that community aspect to it, I think has been pretty, pretty huge for me. Yeah. I am in therapy. It's helpful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but nothing compared to practice. The brunch time? <laughs> I, I think it is. I mean, I'm gobsmacked. I feel like asking you a question, but just there's nothing coming up for me. It's so. <laughs> uh, probably a good thing, but yeah, at the same time, I'd love to discuss more. Um, but if anybody has. Like sweet, kind of poignant <laughs> end. If anybody has any questions uh, later, they can always come find me.